0: We are continuing to march through the book of Genesis. We're in Genesis for one more week, and then we're going to move towards the end of the book. And so today we're in Genesis chapter 6, and I want to invite you to turn your Bibles or illuminate your device or whatever it is you've got to do. But get yourself to Genesis chapter 6. Today we're going to be talking about the story of Noah and the flood, and this is one of those stories that, that people love to look at and, and have all different kinds of versions and, and tales of, and there's been all kinds of different movies made about this, and by the way, my favorite is Evan Almighty with Steve Carell. I think that's probably how it happened, and, uh, no, and uh, so what, no matter what movies are made or no matter who the main character is, you know, the, the most important thing to do before you go to a movie if there's a book involved is to read the book, Right? And so today we're going to go from the book. I hope that's okay. Uh, Russell Crowe's not here. Uh, The giant transforming rock monsters are are not there. Uh, Tubal Cain is not really that upset yet, but we're going to just talk about uh, the flood from God's perspective this morning. Author John Maxwell says this. I love this idea. He says, imagine you're getting to talk with Bible characters or, or anyone from history and you get one lap around the track, just one lap. Uh, who who would your character be? You get a few questions, and then they're going to get to share some things with you and tell you what they learned during their time on this earth. Today we get one lap with Noah. I could do a lot more. I could do 10, 15, 20. I could walk with Noah all day long. I think it would be fascinating ask him how all this went, went down, and one question leads to another. But we get one lap with Noah today And I want us to see what it is that God would have us to learn as we go through this. I love this story, but it begins really in a really interesting manner. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 6 are kind of the prelude that set up what has to happen in the story. The Bible says this, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took them as their wives, any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. The passage, this particular one, these six verses are ones that really tend to get people talking. And if you just read these six verses at some point during your small group this week, uh, you're going to get lots of opinions, you're going to get lots of ideas on, on what was happening here and all the ramifications of this. But, but here's what we know. According to the Bible, and if you just look at, at just straight what the Bible says without taking into account any other gaps in genealogy or anything like that, we are now about 1,600 years past the Garden of Eden. And Genesis 6 opens up with this dramatic picture of the fallen world at this time. You see, the the Bible says that the sons of God took wives. What's the big deal there? Well, the interesting thing is, is that this term, sons of God, always refers to one thing. It never refers to anything else. The term sons of God always refers to angels. So how is it that the sons of God are taking wives and having children? I mean, we see the contrast in the passage. There's the sons of God and the daughters of men. You see, Genesis doesn't tell us this, but there is something awful that has happened right at the beginning of creation, And the Bible tells us about it in a couple of other places, and one of those is Ezekiel chapter 28. One of God's created beings, one of his most beautiful beings, has rebelled against him and has been cast out of God's presence. And here's the record of it. It says, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. And so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you. O guardian cherub, from the midst of stones of fire, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor, the history of the fall of Lucifer, now known as Satan, the enemy of God, the enemy of the Christ follower, truly the enemy of all mankind. The history of his fall is some of the most tragic of all of creation and what happened after. A powerful, beautiful being dwelling on the mountain of God and cast aside because of his own pride and selfishness. And with him, he took one-third of all the created angels, one-third of them who had been in the presence of God. They, they followed Lucifer in a belief that they could be part of a rebellion that would basically overthrow the creator and, and put them in power. And so in the early days of our world, right after the, the fall, we see this recording of demonic activity We've already seen in the Garden of Eden how Satan could inhabit a snake and, now, and interact with Adam and Eve, and now there's other inhabitation going on, and there's other interaction now between the sons of God and the daughters of men, and the world is decaying rapidly. I mean, the ultimate goal of temptation is not just to cause a person to sin, which is to miss the mark, but ultimately to lure someone away. I mean, it was in the Garden of Eden that Satan came to man and and caused man to fall, gave man a temptation. And man and woman, they sinned, they miss the mark, they miss God's best. But that's not all that Satan wants. He doesn't want us just to miss it here and there. He wants, us to lure, he wants to lure us away from the things of God as far away as he can until we are absolutely chasing the things of the world. And that's what's happening in Genesis 6. James says it this way, when we're tempted, we're drawn away and trapped by our own evil desires. Lured away and trapped is the condition of the world at this time. And it's the condition of so many people today. And what happens when we get to this part of the story, beyond the fall, beyond Cain and Abel, is a world that is spinning out of control. And no matter what else you believe about these first few verses of Genesis 6, here's what we know to be true. Conditions are not right. Something is not right, and the conditions need to change wickedness of man is great something has got to change so verse six the lord regretted the esv translation says that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart this is a favorite verse of skeptics and if we can't answer them it may create a little bit of skepticism in us so let me just give you a little explanation of genesis six before we jump over to noah jump forward to noah says that God is sorry some of your translations say but truly what's going on here is that God is sorrowful he's grieved it's not that he's not sovereign it's not that he's not all-knowing that he he didn't know all this was coming it's not that the bible are using God's own words against him but rather that God is sorrowful something is not right conditions need to change God is grieved I think what we learn in this verse is that when something is not right in your own life, it matters to God. When you are hurting, it matters. When you hit a brick wall in your marriage, it matters to God. When you hit a brick wall when it comes to your parenting or your finances or your job, it matters. When you sin, when you miss the mark, it matters the things that have polluted your heart, your mind, and your relationships. It matters to God when things are not right and the conditions need to change. It takes someone to step forward with the courage to obey, the courage to have faith, the courage to do whatever it takes. And most of the time, truly, for the conditions to change, it has to begin with repentance. And to repent is to change your mind, but it's so, it's so strong. It's not just a little changing of the mind. It's, you're convinced you change your mind to the point that you realize something now has got to change. So the story near the beginning of the scriptures gives us this foundation that when something is not right and the conditions need to change, God uses a person. Whenever God wants to change a circumstance or bring about a change of direction, he always uses a person. See, some of you sitting here today, you're just waiting on the world to change. But God says, in order for the world to change, in order for the conditions to change, I'm going to need someone to step up. And then we get to verse eight. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So here's Noah in a world full of people that are pursuing evil, that are pursuing sin, that are going down paths that they ought not be, that are, that are running far from God. Here's a man who is walking with God and he's found favor in the eyes of the Lord. One of the things that I have learn to pray and ask God for, even over just the last few years, is to ask God for his favor. I pray for God's favor for my wife and I, for my kids, for my friends, for my pastor, for my church. And the thing about praying for the favor of God is that you don't always know what the implications will be. I mean, the favor of God is, is hard to define. It looks different whenever it shows up many times. In fact, author Mark Batterson says, favor is what is when God does for you what you cannot do for yourself. And sometimes receiving God's favor will truly complicate your life because sometimes receiving God's favor means a new assignment, which is what it meant for Noah. Asking for the favor of God is, a, is another way of opening your hands, having no real idea of what God is going to put in them. I would encourage you to pray favor over your family. I pray for my boys, Luke two fifty two, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and all people. I pray that my boys grow like Jesus. One of the verses I use when I want to pray favor for someone is one of my favorite in all the scriptures, Deuteronomy thirty-three sixteen. Moses is talking near the end of his life and he's praying a, a blessing over the people of Israel. And he says, I pray that you would receive the favor of the one who dwelt in the burning bush. I love that. The greatest moments in life are the moments when God intervenes on our behalf and blesses us way beyond what we expect or deserve And praying for favor, knowing that the favor of God rests on you is what gives you the confidence to step out in faith. Hebrews 11 talks about faith and the faith of Noah. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. That would be God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And then listen, one of the first examples, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent Fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Faith is the confidence to follow God, even when you can't see everything He's up to. And it's not just reserved for the stuff of legend; or rather, it's part of being an everyday hero and a crucial element that must be present when things are out of control and conditions need to change. You see, for some of you this morning, God's tapping you on the shoulder. And you know, and the Spirit of God is prompting you right now, something's not right in my home. Something's not right in my life. Something's not right. Their conditions are not right, and something needs to change. And God is saying to you this morning, listen, I want to use you to change things. Because whenever God wants to change the conditions, whenever there's a a need like this, He always uses a person. And He's looking for someone who's not perfect, but who, as the Bible says about Noah, Working to be blameless and is walking with God. The Bible says this very simply about Noah, and I hope this is something that can be on my tombstone one day. Noah walked with God. I mean, why did God choose Noah of all the people on the earth? Why did he receive the favor of God? It's not just because God can do whatever he wants, although he can. It's not because Noah was perfect, he's not. He's blameless, he's not perfect. But he pursued God. He walked with God. One of the things that now in going over 17 years of marriage. My wife and I had our anniversary last week. One of the things we have learned to do together is just to go for a walk. Now this is different than when she tells me to go take a hike. This is something completely different. (laughs) This is when we actually go and walk together. And this is not necessarily for exercise or, or anything else. This is just this is just walking together. And there's typically not an agenda. Sometimes there is. She lets me know when I get out there. But most of the time, there's not an agenda. We're just talking about the day. We're maybe talking about our schedules or family details or just what's going on in in life. Sometimes we're talking about people we've been praying for and and things that have happened at any given time. But we're just walking together. And she'll tell you it's been one of the the great things to help me with communication in marriage. Some of you are thinking, well, aren't you good talking at home? Well, not, not as good as maybe being up here and having all this typed out and ready to go. I mean, guys, most men in marriages, after about 12, our answers don't change to what did you do today? Well, nothing. I mean, how are you? I'm good. I mean, that's about all you get out of guys, right? And so this has been a way, getting us walking together is a way for it. Just, I don't know what it is, guys, but when we're in an activity and we're just kind of out, we just, we just kind of open up. And this idea that Noah walked with God, is, means he was just, they were side by side and they just talked. And can you imagine, the prophet Amos says, how can two walk together unless they are in agreement? I mean, what does it mean that Noah walked with God? It means that there's no distance between he and God. There's nothing being held back. It means that there's total transparency and a lack of doubt. I mean, practically to walk with God is to regularly go to him in his word, not just for trivia, not just to figure things out or try to solve an argument, but to allow him every day to speak into your life and try to shape your everyday life. It's in talking to him, everyday prayer. It doesn't have to be in, in long volumes every time. It can just be in little short moments as God puts things on your mind, a person, a circumstance, a worry, a grief. All of these things can be met with little sentence prayers of They lead to unending just communion with God. And the more you put this into practice, the more you begin to seek him first in every area of your life, the more it puts you in a position to be able to do anything that God asks you to do, no matter how simple or how great, including when God asks you to build something so big and so ridiculous for a weather event that you've never heard of before, well past your prime. Noah is probably in his 480s when God comes to him. I mean, I don't know how old you're feeling this morning. I don't know if your knees were hurting, if you're dreading kind of getting up at the end of the service because you're, you're kind of worried about your lower back or whatever. But, but God comes to Noah in his 470s or 480s and says, I want you to build an ark. And here's the deal. It's gonna be 450 feet long. It's going to be 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. It's not a speedboat, Noah, so I want you to put a roof on it. And there's, I want you to put a window in it about 18 inches from the top. Put a door on the side of the ship and you're not gonna have to worry about closing and I'm gonna take care of that for you. And I want you to put three decks inside, lower, middle, and upper. All told, the ark was, a, was roughly about 100,000 square feet in space. If you were to walk every inch of this building, including all the kids' areas, all the things behind the stage, offices, all that, you get about 100,000 square feet. And so Noah... And his three boys are supposed to start to build this together. Nothing else is built even close to this size for another 5,000 years. This is going to take a while, by the way. In fact, it seems from what we read, and we can't be exact with this, but it seems to be about a 120-year project. This has gone way beyond Legos and family bonding. 1 Peter 3 indicates that the reason why this took so long was not just because it was Noah and the three boys just doing this together plank by plank and and just little by little over all these years, but rather because as the ark was being constructed, as it was being built, it was a message to everyone who would find out about it and everyone found out about it. Have you heard what Noah's doing? I have no idea what he's doing, but he has spent enough time with his children. He needs to just kind of stop this. At any time, he's gone crazy. And as he's building this over 120 years, it's taking so long because God is still wanting to give everyone a chance at repentance. God is still wanting to give everyone one, a chance to change their minds so that their lives will change direction and so they can be rescued from what's to come. But no one else does. Have you ever wondered why God doesn't just stop all the rebellion and suffering and pain in the world? Have you ever wondered why God just doesn't end things right now, why Jesus just doesn't come back and make it all right? Here's the reason. It's because he is giving everyone on this planet still a chance to turn around and to find the Savior. And the reason why things keep going on and on the way that they do and the opportunity for all of us as followers of God is to be able to continue to share acts of love and kindness and the message of the gospel with people in acts and in words great and small. That's why he hasn't come back yet. There's still people who need to be rescued and redeemed. And as the people of God, we still need to be a part of that actively wherever we live, work and play. No, there's a few other things I need you to do. Genesis 6, verse 22. I need you to take two of every living creature, a male and a female, on board the ship to preserve their lives with you. Two of every species of bird, mammal, and reptile. Now, see, here's the thing. He had to add the words and reptile. That's where I have a problem, okay? This was our chance, Noah. I mean, we didn't have to bring the snakes along. Well, God said and reptile. Okay, fine, bring the reptiles. God wants to do it, all right. Two of everything so as to preserve their lives along with yours. Also, and don't miss this because this had to have been a big chore as well. Also get all the food you'll need and store it up for you and them. Now I have some questions. Do you have any questions? God, do you have any idea how old a boy this guy is? Seriously. Where is all the wood coming from? And by the way, what is gopher wood? Because we really don't know what it is. And how is he going to get it all to the place where he's going to build it? And how is he sawing the wood? Is this like, is this glue down? What, what is this? Does he really have to bring the reptiles? And listen, I know you said two by two, but some of these animals are going to want to eat each other, so does Noah need to bring spares? I mean, truly, there's so many questions that go along with this whole story. But it stays pretty simple for one reason. Genesis six twenty two says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Genesis seven, verse five. Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. He stayed faithful and obedient every step of the way. But for me, when I look at the story of Noah, can I just tell you I really don't have a problem with God asking me to build something. I'll do that. Is, is it going to take 120 years? God, if you let me live that long, then I'm, I'm in. This is good. I like Legos. We can do this for a long time. So this is good. God gives the blueprints and we just keep on going. I'm going to be working with my boys. I'm, I'm good with that. My wife's going to be working and helping us out too. I'm, I'm good with that. All of this is fine. I'll, I'll do whatever you want, God. The problem that I have when I look at the story of Noah, when I read through Genesis six, seven, eight, and nine, when I look at this story, the problem that I have is the waiting. 120 years, I can't stay focused on a project nearly that long. I mean, I don't know about you, but I need breaks, a lot of them. I mean, I can stay focused on something 20, 30 minutes. I mean, that's, that's as much as we're going to get out of me, all right? I'm going to have to get up and walk around, probably do something else. I call it multitasking, but what it is is a bunch of projects I haven't finished. So you want me to focus on the same thing for 120 years? years and bring the snakes and so here's what I'm doing I'm telling my boys you can't get on the boat unless you bring the snakes this is how this is going to work 120 years and then Noah and his family get on the ark seven days ahead of time and all the animals they come two by two and I don't know if Noah's organizing the animals and all that and then more time goes by in the story For 40 days and 40 nights, it rained. The water covered the earth, and not just from above, not just from the canopy in the sky, but also from below. The the rains covered the earth to the highest mountain peak, 45, 50 feet higher than the highest mountain, the Scriptures say. Genesis 7, verse 23 tells us, As a result, God blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, they were blotted out... From the earth, 40 days and nights it rained. Without the sun, moon, and stars, I mean, there had to be days where Noah and his wife and his boys and their wives are looking at each other going, do we have any idea how much longer this is going to be? Do we have any idea what day we're on? We haven't seen the sun in days or weeks. And then about 150 days later, they come to rest somewhere in the mountains of Ararat and then the Bible says that God caused wind to begin to blow like we see in other places in the Old Testament like when the Red Sea was parted the wind of God blew all that night and now 150 days after the 40 days of rain, after the 120 years of construction, after the seven day period where you're getting organized and getting everything in time, time, it all goes by waiting and more waiting and more waiting. And now three months after the 150 day period, we can begin to see the tops of the mountains of Ararat. Think about how excited the family must have been. And it was another 40 days still before Noah could send out a bird to test to see if the water had receded enough for the family to leave. And then another bird. And then another week upon week upon week. Something is not right and conditions need to change. Yes, God needs people of faith and courage and obedience to be the ones to challenge the things that aren't right in this world, to to be the one to challenge the things that aren't right in your family, to to have the courage to grab your wife by the hand or your husband by the hand or your kids by the neck and say, listen, it's not going to be this way anymore. We are going to make a difference. We are going to change. We are gonna put God on display. But what happens when you've done everything you know how to do, when you've prayed every prayer you know how to pray, and then you're just waiting? That's when faith Tested. And for some of you this morning, let the story of Noah, as I look at it, when I look at it, I see all the time that goes by. Let some of, I want some of you to hear this morning. Keep waiting, keep waiting expectantly on God because he will never let you down. And I can tell you how I know this because when Noah was finally able to get off this boat, he took a moment and he worshiped God. He put a sacrifice on an altar and then you know what God did? He put his rainbow in the sky to remind us not just that he will never flood the earth again, but to remind us that he always keeps his promises. He never forsakes his people. And something is not right. You have to act, even in the unknown. God gives you the the blueprints for this much, but maybe not the whole thing. When he gives you the next step, you take it. When he gives you the step after that, you take it. And then the next one, and then the next one. And as much as we want to see the whole story, we want to see the whole timeline, we want to understand it all. If you will take one step after another, sooner or later, you will be able to look back and see what God was doing all along there is only one other time in the scripture where the word that's used for Noah's ark is used. Noah's talked about several other times. It's a story that inspired so many other people. I would encourage you in your groups this week to look up Ezekiel 14. It's a fascinating passage and look at how God groups Daniel and Job and Noah together in the same passage. So many different places we could go and reference, but there's One other time where the word that's used for ark is used, and it's one of my favorite things in the beginning of of the scriptures, the first five books, I wanna show it to you. Turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter two. Exodus chapter two, we are in the story of Moses. And when Moses was born, if you remember, the Pharaoh in Egypt had made a declaration because the Hebrew people were getting too strong and too populous, even as slaves. And so he decided he wanted to kill all of the Hebrew infant boys. And so Moses's family hides him. And in Exodus chapter two, verse three, it says, when she, Moses's mom, could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. You see, we believe that Moses was the one who wrote down the Genesis account. At some point, maybe on Mount Sinai, when he was there receiving the Ten Commandments, and he was up there a long time, so it appears as though God gave him a lot more than just the Ten Commandments and the the laws that followed. At some point, we believe God gave Moses the creation account to write down. And when Moses looks back over the course of his life, I think when he gets to this moment in Exodus chapter 2, one that he doesn't remember, but he's been told about. He had to have just been in awe of God. And he talks about the basket that his mom put him in to float him down the Nile. Why does he talk about the basket? He doesn't remember. Why does he describe it this way? In fact, he describes it the same way that the ark is described. He describes it the same way as it's covered on the outside with pitch. There's these little little things here and there that remind us, hey, wait, it's kind of like that. But then we get to this moment where he uses the same word for the basket that's used for Noah's ark. It's the only time in scripture where the two match up. You see, I think at the moment that Moses wrote this down, He must have been looking back over his life and thinking about the thousands of Hebrew babies that were killed by the Egyptians near the time of his birth. He should have been one of those. And it must have hit him like a a ton of bricks, how the Hebrew people had been enslaved for hundreds of years, and how he got to be raised as a prince in Egypt. And for Moses, there is this moment that he is not responsible for, that only God could have orchestrated in his sovereignty, where Moses realizes... He is the recipient of the favor of God even before he's old enough to have faith and obey. So when he's writing down the story, he uses the same word to describe the object of his deliverance as he uses for the word for Noah's deliverance and mankind's as well. You see, when we study the Bible, we can find plagues, we can find destruction, destruction, we can find floodwaters and we can choose to focus on the wrath of God or you can see a basket of mercy floating on the water. A basket of God's deliverance filled with his love, filled with his plan basket of mercy, treating us with forgiveness that we do not deserve. You see, at the very beginning of the story, when conditions are not right, conditions are not acceptable, and something has to be done, it's the mercy of God that initiates the turnaround, not the wrath of God. It's the mercy of God that initiates the turnaround the story. When you're sitting in your car or at your desk at work or at the dining room table or maybe you're sitting up at night in bed next to your spouse and there's something that just keeps nagging at you, there's something inside of you that is just screaming out, this is not right, conditions are not right. And something needs to change. Our marriage shouldn't be this way. Our family shouldn't be this way. It really should not be this way. Can I tell you what that is? That is the spirit of almighty God coming to you in his mercy and saying, I want you to be the one who makes the change. I'm giving you the opportunity to follow me in faith. I'm giving you the opportunity to follow me in obedience. Whenever God needs to make a change, he always uses a person. So stop waiting around and say, God, I will be that person. For the sake of your family, for the sake of your family, for the sake of your community, for the sake of your marriage, some of you need to absolutely, not just a little course correction, some of you absolutely need to repent. You need to have a change of mind that leads to a massive change of direction in your home. And the Bible says, be strong and courageous, for I will be with you wherever you go, from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. He is with you. And yes, he is grieved at times, but his mercy keeps pursuing us. He doesn't doesn't have to. But his mercy offers us forgiveness again and again and again. I love the words of the song Matt Redman sings simply called Mercy. Mercy is endless as the sea. May I never lose the wonder of your mercy. You see, we're all recipients of God's mercy. It was the mercy of God that looked down at the sinful condition of the world and said, This is not acceptable. Something has to be done. So God sent his only son, meaning for him to be nailed to a cross. And when you look at the cross and the crucifixion record, yeah, you can see beating. You can see mocking. You can see the crown of thorns. You can see the nails in his hands. You can see awful circumstances. You can see the wrath of God but God hung his son on that cross to be a vessel of mercy. And mercy provided a way of rescue that only he could have brought about. And he offers that to every single one of us today. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? If you're here today and even in this moment, The Spirit of God, because of God's mercy, is saying to you, you know it's not right and it needs to change. The sin that you've been hanging on to, you know it's not my best. You know it misses the mark. You've been lured far away and trapped. But God is greater and he can bring you back home. Some of you are sitting there and you know It's not all right at home. And you know God wants a change. And even in your seat today, he's reminding you. And he's saying, I want you to be the one. I want you to be the one to bring it about. I want to use you. I know you don't feel worthy. I know you're not perfect. But I want to use you. If you're here today and God speaking to your heart in that way. Let this be the moment where your mind has changed, your direction has changed, the trajectory of your family has changed, and you come back to God from wherever you've been. Let this be the moment where you have the courage to follow him the way he's been asking you to. Even now in your heart, there in your chair, you can pray and and make that commitment to him. Here in just a moment, if you want to come down and pray with one of our Life Care volunteers, we'd love to have the opportunity. You can come to them and say, listen, this needs to change. I want my church to come alongside of me and help me change this. And we'll meet you right there where you are, just as God does. If you're here today and you say, I've never put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. His son is a vessel of mercy for you, offering you forgiveness. That none of us deserve, but that he's made available.